Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Wanted to update you real quick, we just added a benefit to our Patreon. That is a private Facebook group where we can actively learn about black history together. And remember that all the money that we raise through Patreon during this batch of 10 episodes will be going to Abide Women's Health Center. Today's topic is W.E.B. Du Bois. We first go over the beginnings of his life, who he is, his education experience, his move to Atlanta, some stories from his past, his involvement in the NAACP, a little bit about black reconstruction, and then we recap everything with his final years when he moved to Ghana. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, y'all, we're going to be talking about W.B. Du Bois today, and per the norm, I don't know very much about him at all. I know that he writes things, or I've been told mm-hmm. that he's, he's written things. So please explain to me who he is, what's the time frame, what's going on in America, and tell me about him. He was born right after the Civil War, so that's the time frame. He was an author, editor, sociologist, historian, and civil rights activist. He did more in one lifetime than almost anyone else I could think of. I mean, as we go through it, the list that I just read is still inadequate, even though that's a lot of things. He did a lot more. He was he helped found the NAACP. He was at the meeting where the UN was started. He did a lot. He was a Pan-Africanist. Mm-hmm. Du Bois, if we, had him on, if we interviewed him on the podcast, which we can't because he's no longer living, but if we did and Katina asked her question, who is Du Bois? I think part of what would maybe come out, some of just his personality or little asides, aside from just his accomplishments, I think to humanize him, he had a well-maintained mustache that was impressive. He enjoyed tennis. He had a good singing voice. And he was very well-organized. He mapped out his schedule and his goals on graph paper and worked relentlessly to achieve them, not just for his own sake, but to elevate the status of black people as a whole. His whole philosophy was that he wanted himself and other black people to make progress and with that to bring the whole black race, elevate the whole black race along with them. And so he worked not just for himself, but for others. And he dressed up and walked with confidence. So jumping into his story, we're going to talk first about just his story and his biography, and then we'll kind of get into some of his ideology. He was born on February 23rd, 1868, to Alfred and Mary Sylvania. William's father left when he was just a couple years old, and his mother died in 1885 when William was about 16. I don't know if I said W.E.B. Du Bois stands for William Edward Burkhart Du Bois. He also just went by William. So when I talk about William, I'm talking about him. His mother had a stroke before she had passed away a few years earlier that left her leg disabled. And so William, in his late teen years, he cared for his mother and was like a primary caretaker for her uh, throughout his late childhood. 
And then she lived to see him graduate as the valedictorian of his high school class, but then she passed away shortly after. Did you say where he was born? He was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and he says of his upbringing, quote, The small western New England town where I was born and several generations of my fathers before me was a middle-class community of Americans of English and Dutch descent, with an Irish laboring class and a few remnants of Negro working folk of past centuries. Farmers and small merchants predominated. In the public schools of this town, I was trained from the age of 6 to 16, and in its schools, churches, and general social life, I gained my patterns of living. I had almost no experience of segregation or color discrimination. My schoolmates were invariably white. I joined quite naturally all games, excursions, church festivals, recreation like coasting, skating, and ball games. I was in and out of homes of nearly all my mates and ate and played with them. I was a boy unconscious of color discrimination in any obvious and specific way. So he had a a pretty good start, a pretty good upbringing. His teachers recognized his intelligence early on and school became a refuge for him. Again, he was the valedictorian of his class, so he was smart and recognized as being smart. And his friend's mother, seeing that, gave him a Greek primer to prepare him for college because in those days it was pretty essential to to know Greek to get into college. And his principal urged him to continue his studies. When he graduated from high school, his church congregation actually pooled together some funds and resources to help send him to college. And although Du Bois early on didn't, he says that he didn't experience obvious color segregation, as he started to get a little older, he started to sense it. And with it, some loneliness. Because again, his father passed away, his mother passed away. And so he, as he was going off to college, was an orphan. And then he also just had some loneliness because he started to notice his white community, his white friends were starting to pull away. He says, I was beginning to feel loneliness in New England because unconsciously I realized that as I grew older, the close social intermingling with my white fellows would grow more restricted. There were meetings, parties, clubs to which I was not invited. Especially in the case of strangers, visitors, newcomers to the town, was my presence and friendship a matter of explanation or even embarrassment to my schoolmates? So even being in a little bit of a kind of more progressive safe haven in the world of that day, he started to pick up on some of the racial attitudes. So he left and went to Fisk and then eventually Harvard. He went first to Fisk University, a historically black university in Nashville, Tennessee, from 1885 to 88. And his horizons were broadened there. He said of the student population at Fisk, just kind of referring to how much broader the world was that people were coming from, he said there were men and women who had faced mobs and seen lynchings, who knew every phase of insult and repression. And two, there were sons, daughters, and clients of every class of white Southerner. I saw and talked with white people, noted now their unease, now their truculence, and again their friendliness. Hmm. He just experienced some of the whiteness and white culture, some desire on the parts of... I mean, the white people who were there were at a multiracial university, so it was generally white people who at some level valued multiracial integration, but even then he noticed and notes how there was some you know, truculence, I think is the word that he used, and had to learn how to navigate that. So once he gained his bachelor's from Fisk, he went to Harvard from 1888 to 1890, And Harvard accepted only some of his courses from Fisk, so he actually had to 
kind of redo some of his work at Harvard. And he got a second degree there and graduated cum laude. He paid his way through Harvard through a variety of summer jobs, scholarships, and loans from some friends. And he was then accepted into the sociology graduate program. Du Bois also got a scholarship to continue his studies for a time in Berlin. And he later, talking back, looking back at that experience in Berlin and talking about its significance for him, he said, I found myself on the outside of the American world looking in. With me were white folk, students, acquaintances, teachers, who viewed the scene with me. They did not pause to regard me as a curiosity or something subhuman. I was just a man of the somewhat privileged student rank with whom they were glad to meet and talk over the world. I emerged from the extremes of my cultural provincialism. I became more human. I ceased to hate or suspect people simply because they belonged to one race or color. So returning from Europe, he completed his PhD from Harvard in 1895, and shortly after, he ended up at Wilberforce University in Ohio, where he met and married Nina Gomer, and then he went to the University of Pennsylvania pretty quickly. And he was just there for a year, and while he was there, he studied, he lived in, studied, and did extensive interviews in the black urban core of Philadelphia. And he did groundbreaking research that basically helped to shape the field of sociology. The U.S. government, basically in response to this publication, The Philadelphia Negro, offered him grants to continue doing research because he was one of the first, he did the first sociological study of a black community. And he also was one of the first, at least pushed forward the use of statistics in sociology. So kind of took on a more quantitative rather than just qualitative approach to studying Philadelphia and the black community there. So he, uh, among the many other accolades you could say about Du Bois, he helped to push forward uh, the field of sociology and the way that it looked at communities in America. Then in 1897, William took a professorship in history and economics at the historically black Atlanta University, and he moved his family down to Atlanta. But their arrival in Atlanta was not a welcome one. So there was a man named Samuel Hose that had been lynched days before Du Bois arrived there in Atlanta. So to understand Du Bois and his experience of Atlanta, let's let's talk about that lynching that happened, and just because I think it, it paints the picture of what Atlanta was like in those days. So the man who was lynched, Samuel Hose, was described by those who knew him as kind and intelligent. He could read and write, which was somewhat notable in those days, and he actually would have gone and pursued higher education, but he had a disabled brother who he stayed in his position and supported his brother. And the actual events that led up to him being lynched, it it occurred because he was in a heated exchange with his employer, Alfred Cranford, over whether or not he could have time off to go visit his ailing mother. So, I mean, honestly, putting myself in his shoes, that's something that you could easily see how you could get passionate about. It potentially being the last chance to see your mother before she passes. And in this exchange, the men became heated. Cranford, being a white supremacist, obviously did not respond well to his employee standing up to him and demanding the right to go see his ailing mother. And so Cranford pulled a revolver and aimed it at Hose who at the time was working with an axe 
And so Hose, in self-defense, seeing the revolver pulled on him, struck Cranford with it and killed him. In the wake of that, immediately Hose realized what he had done and he fled. And then the police tracked him down. There was five different bounties taken out on him as white people kind of you know, formed a mob and got into a frenzy over what had happened. There was no police investigation. The police didn't do any interviews or try to figure out what happened. Rather, it was just understood by all that it was going to be a lynching, not a police um, investigation. Mm. And the newspapers actually then competed with one another to publish more and more sensational accounts of what had happened to the point that they were publishing, the local newspapers in Atlanta were publishing that Hose had sexually assaulted Cranford's wife and child in front of him as he lay dying. Hmm. Which the police then did actually investigate that and she immediately said that no, he never came into the house, he didn't hurt either of us, he immediately fled. But that didn't matter because once the newspapers had published it, the whole city was kind of whipping itself into a frenzy Hmm. over those false allegations. And so he was tracked down and he was eventually found. Once Hose was captured, he was chained to a tree and his skin was, he was skinned alive. His skin of his face was taken off and then he was dismembered. Parts of his body were cut away. They sold pieces of his bones for 25 cents each. All this in front of a crowd of 2,000 people. There was actually train loads of more people who were en route to come and watch the lynching. So there would have been a much larger crowd. But the crowd that was there was afraid that some of the trains might be National Guard troops coming to prevent the lynching. And so they moved forward with it before all the other crowds even arrived. A sign over hose read, quote, we must protect our Southern women, alluding to the demonstrably false allegations of the rape that obviously didn't happen. Du Bois saw his burnt knuckles like as Du Bois arrived in Atlanta and was walking around on the streets days later, he saw Hose's burnt knuckles on sale in an Atlanta storefront. Mm. I think that was his reception to, to this new city where he, he had these ambitions to love his countrymen and love his race and to love America by making it a better country. And his reception is coming and walking the streets and seeing just the barbaric display of burnt knuckles being sold as a celebration of this brutality. So he determined then, or he realized quickly, that the white community in Atlanta was completely callous to reality. The lynching of Hose had a big effect on Du Bois, and it also actually brought him together with Ida B. Wells, who was doing work to protest against that specific lynching, along with others. Ida B. Wells, we'll have to do an episode on her at some point, but she did a ton of work exposing the evil of lynchings. And Du Bois and Ida met through that, and then it actually was kind of one of the dominoes that fell towards the establishment of the NAACP because through that, he and Ida got involved with the Niagara movement that eventually was like a precursor or led towards the establishment of the NAACP. You mentioned earlier, Katina, that he also was involved with Pan-Africanism, which was a movement that was trying to end colonialism for Africa and for the West Indies and try to take these colonies and set them free and make them self-governing. So even internationally, he was an activist. He also, in 1900, he organized an exposition for the Paris Exposition. He organized a booth that represented African Americans to the world. 
He was the primary organizer of the exhibit of the American Negroes, and he put together 363 photographs that depicted African Americans around the turn of the century and pushed against the racist caricatures and stereotypes that prevailed. So he helped to really affect the way and and move forward the way that African Americans were viewed globally. Is at that time, American minstrel songs were a large export of America. And most of the way that Europeans knew about African Americans was just through American music, American minstrel songs that were exported over there that were all just horrifically racist. And so that was what people from Europe knew. And so having this exposition, this place where people from Europe could start to see the humanity and the dignity of African Americans was actually a big movement forward. Those songs were made up, like white people made them? Yeah, white people would dress up in blackface and perform minstrel songs. And they, it was like the main form of music in those days. Like most recordings at that time were minstrel songs. But black people would also be employed to do that. And when you don't have many options, that's what you, if you're going to feed yourself and your family, that's what you do. So black people, even in Shirley Temple movies, you see a lot of that. The minstrel shows, the minstrel songs, black people would actually have to put on blackface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poem, who he was a friend of W.E.B., he wrote a, a poem called We Wear the Mask. And that mask kind of draws those parallels of black people having to code switch and to cover, but also having to wear the mask, being black and wearing black face and having to self-caricaturize to basically just to survive. Yeah. I mean, mean, it sounds like that's like the epitome of like what a lot of people think racism is. Like that's Mm -hmm. like terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was horrific. And and W. E. B. Du Bois actually mentored Harry Pace, who started the first African American record company, which basically was the first big push away from minstrelsy and towards more legitimate and dignified expressions of music in America. It started up a whole new avenue of recording because at that time, you know, if you were a musician, it most that's what it was, was minstrelsy. That's like what the form of music at that time right. was that was being right. marketed. So given all this, Du Bois emerged as a spokesperson for the African-American race, second only to Booker T. Washington, um, right. who was somewhat his senior at that point and had been kind of on the scene longer. So leading up to Du Bois' rise, Booker T. Washington had been the primary spokesper- spokesperson for African-Americans, and he had... Booker T. had agreed to a plan in 1895, which was the year that W.E.B. graduated from Harvard, so Mm -hmm. like before he was really on the scene yet. Booker T. had been the primary party representing African Americans in the Atlanta Compromise, which was a compromise with Southern whites. Mm -hmm. And it basically permitted the ongoing segregation and subjugation of black people for a few scant concessions. Essential elements of the agreement were that blacks would not push for the right to vote, that they wouldn't retaliate against racist behavior from whites, and that they would tolerate segregation and discrimination, and that in return they would receive free basic education, but that education would be limited to vocational and industrial trainings. Higher education would be prohibited. So Booker T. Washington 
basically, I mean, was seen by a lot of people as having kind of sold the farm. He basically agreed to become and and remain second class citizens. Yeah. Uh, in exchange for the concession of early childhood education, but even that education was going to be just preparing black people to work the jobs that white people kind of wanted black people to work, like low-paying, menial labor jobs. So Du Bois rebuked Washington in one of his most popular books, The Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. It's one of his most enduring works, and it was published in 1903, and it was a collection of 14 essays about the humanity and genius of the black race. The work pushed back strongly against segregation, and though it was polite to Booker T. Washington and even praised him at some points, he called, in in multiple places, called his teachings and ideology propaganda, Mm. and he scorched the Atlanta Compromise. So WB, he didn't, I wouldn't say he declared war on Booker T., but he wasn't friendly to him in that book, and he argued for... W.B. Du Bois much more was on the side of wanting full equal citizenship and let's not wait for it, let's not move slowly, let's not make incremental progress, let's demand equality. Mm-hmm. Whereas Booker T. was much more of an incrementalist approach. Let's take small steps because white people aren't going to give us more. Du Bois further critiqued Washington's doctrines saying, quote, Washington's doctrines have tended to make whites, both North and South, shift the Negro problem to the Negro's shoulders and stand aside as critical and rather pessimistic spectators, when in fact the burden belongs to the nation and the hands of none of us are clean if we bend not our energies to righting these great wrongs. So at that time, Du Bois was writing from and still lived in Atlanta, and this was less than a decade after the Hose lynching that we read earlier. And in 1906, uh, there was further horrific racial violence. There was a shortage of work, and employers began pitting black workers against white workers in a bid to lower wages. So basically, if if white laborers threatened to strike or just demanded better pay, businesses would bring in black workers and say, okay, you guys will just fire you and hire black people Mm. because they'll work for less. And so then the white people organized a mob, and 10,000 white people made a mob and rampaged Atlanta. And somewhere between 30 and 100 black people were massacred. And a massacre, it was like a slightly smaller version of the Tulsa massacre. Similar to Tulsa, the police department participated in the massacre. And similar to Tulsa, it was expunged from the white consciousness after the fact. It was not taught in schools until a century later. And white people, after the fact, just kind of pretended like it didn't happen. That was further impetus for, in 1909, so just a few years later, Du Bois attended the National Negro Conference, and this work became a building block for the path forward, which was to establish the NAACP. So in 1910, Du Bois was a co-founder of that organization, and William was offered the position of the Director of Publicity and Research, which he accepted and moved to New York, where he did that. He edited the NAACP's monthly publication, The Crisis, with phenomenal success. They actually had 100,000 readers by 1920. In 1917, in St. Louis, the industries of East St. Louis, similar to what had happened in Atlanta, the industry started hiring black workers to replace striking white workers, which led to mob violence against the black community. And a couple hundred black people were massacred there. 
Which is crazy because that's white business owners making that decision. Yeah, white business owners are deciding to not hire white workers. Because they were striking. Because they were striking. And then they get mad at the black community. Yeah. And then it never took much for them to get mad that's at the crazy. black community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to really, I mean, I don't know. That just seems crazy to me. But mm-hmm. yeah. In reality, if poor people, if laborers of that day actually wanted to advance themselves more, you know, the whole idea of unions is collective action. That if you act collectively, you can have better bargaining power against the people with more power the, in, in those days. It was like the industrial business owners. So what would have made the most sense would be poor whites and the black laborers teaming up and saying, right. let's strike together and demand better wages for all of us. Because if we all strike, and in those days you kind of enforce the strike by like, basically if you don't strike with us, we're going to all like start targeting you. So if they all struck together they could have probably made a lot more progress. But because of that animosity, which actually was fostered even by the white people in charge who knew that, hey, let's keep them divided because then we can play them off of each other, then it basically took away the bargaining power of all the poor laborers. But that's how, like we talked about in the other episode, how the construct of whiteness laid firm its foundation by creating division between poor white people and enslaved black people or poor black people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's how it's, I mean, it still stands today. Mm -hmm. It still is strong today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that I just, you know, this is post-Emancipation Proclamation. This is like 40 years after that. And I mean, I know Tulsa happened in 1921 and we're not quite to 1921 are we? We're pretty much there. I mean, we're 1917. 1917. I mean, that's crazy to me that this is like, you know, a lot of white people will point back to Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves, you know, mm-hmm. air, that's in air quotes. But it's almost hard to realize that. I mean, a lot of the things that we talk about, it's, I, I can't even, I can't even imagine that. It's mm-hmm. hard for me to think 10,000 people got together and were like, let's go kill and massacre and destroy this, mm-hmm. this town. That's, and it's crazy just that most people today don't realize that this happened. I think a lot of white people just only discovered that Tulsa even happened really this year right. because of the centennial. Right. But here, this was within four years of that and also a couple hundred black people being massacred. And it's just history that's not known. And it's like Tulsa was one of many of these massacres that were happening. And in some ways it was the worst because Greenwood was... I mean, it was Black Wall Street. It was like one of the the like nicest, wealthiest, most thriving black communities. But it was one of many massacres that were part of this dynamic that was happening. Well, and it was a thriving community for any culture. Like it was a, a wealthy community. And so all across the country, this happened in with black thriving communities and townships. And if they weren't destroying them by burning them down or lynching, they would kill people and then they would create lakes. So a lot of the lakes across the country are are basically man-made, born from white supremacy, basically covering black townships, mm-hmm. filling them with water. So yeah. there, are, there are black townships that exist underwater across the country. Mm-hmm. Or the same with urban renewal in the yep. 50s through the 70s. They, they intentionally aimed highways 
yep. had black communities or divided black communities with highways. Greenwood, that was massacred in the Tulsa massacre in the 70s, had two highways run right through it, intersecting it into multiple pieces. And As this if was just, the massacre itself wasn't enough. Mm-hmm, yep. Anyways, getting back to it, in St. Louis, this massacre happened and... W.B. Du Bois, from, he was the editor for The Crisis, NAACP's publication, so he published a piece on it and to like the widespread outcry of the black community, obviously. And I mean, prior to this, most black people didn't have a lot of media and press that they controlled, and so having The Crisis was a big step forward towards black people being able to organize and see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment of the outcry to the St. Louis massacre, Du Bois organized a parade, a silent march down Fifth Avenue, and 9,000 people participated in what would become just the second march of the civil rights movement. Mm. So like a kind of a precursor to the civil rights movement. So then now if you want to talk about the Talented Tenth. That, yeah, that, that was one of the... So W.E.B. Du Bois, he promoted this concept or idea of a leadership class of black people called the Talented Tenth, coined the Talented Tenth. It was an idea that was created by Northern white philanthropists, but he publicized it and wrote about it, talked about and talks about how black people who were able to afford to be be educated, to come into money, you know, to establish generational wealth, like basically an elite class of black people who would save the rest of the culture through education and politics and business commerce and that type of thing. He later revised that ideology. I mean, it was elitist. It really was. It was elitist. But he, he revised it and he coined a phrase called the guided 100th or the guided 100th. And he came to believe that we needed within the culture, within our people group, we needed the people who had struggled the most to also be a part of leadership, to be a part of saving the race, so to speak. So he changed his thoughts towards the talented 10th to the guided 100th. But that's something that he's really well known for. And that's something that people still... I remember being in college and, you know, hearing about the Talented Tenth and people really ascribed to that, that those of us who were able to go to college and have certain privileges, that we would save the race. And I would hear that all the time. We got to save the race, you know, because I was a college-educated woman and there were so many black people that were so-called left behind to struggle. And so yeah. he, he was re- very well known for that. And in the context, and not to like excuse it because I think it is elitist, but in the context, Booker T. Washington had basically agreed for the African-American people in the South, throughout the South where almost all African-American people lived, that they would basically close the doors to higher education in order to get these concessions. Right. And so then in that context, it kind of makes sense for WB to push back and say like, no, that tenth of people that would go to higher education, that matters because that's part of how white people right now are literally in the process of trying to hold us back mm-hmm. by confining us just to menial labor jobs. Right. And part of white supremacy rested on this idea of like, well, black people can't make it on their own. They can, you know, they can't do it on their own. And also, part of it is just you need people to do higher education in order to actually run institutions. Otherwise, you're just kind of 
you don't have the power in society. Well, and also the idea that black people going to college being a threat because if black people can't have money without their homes getting burnt down and them getting lynched, them pursuing higher education, that contributed to lynchings and oppression. And so it's understandable. There's absolutely no judgment for me because our people were, black people were trying to do the best that they could with what they had. And there were just different schools of thought. We're not a monolith. Booker T, he had his concessions and his ideologies. W.E.B. had his. And there were other, you know, great thinkers and people that were doing the work of justice and trying to push the culture forward. And when you think about they're doing this to the backdrop of slavery or just coming out of slavery or, you know, the country, lynchings across the country, people being displaced, slave patrols, just, you know, all those things. It's just a miracle that people, that spaces were created for people to even think beyond the oppression that they were experiencing. I mean, when you talk about W.E.B. basically being welcomed to Atlanta with this horrific lynching and how, of course, that shaped him. And then all the other experiences that he had. I mean, it's a wonder that, like I said, it's a miracle that we're as far as we are. And that's a credit to us. It's a discredit to white America, though. It's a discredit to white people that we should be further because none of this stuff should have happened to in in the first place. But the fact that we have been able to push things forward as far as with, with so much resistance is just really powerful. And it, it's taken W.E.B., it's taken Zora Neale Hurston, who has such a tremendous heart for the people and the folklore and the history and, and the telling of our stories by the people like from within the the culture of labor workers and those who have been formerly enslaved and those who had not been educated and those who spoke broken English or could not read or write, along with the talented 10th and the guided 100th and the industrial workers. And it just took all of it. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a credit to us, but a complete discredit mm-hmm. to white America. Yeah, and that's kind of the quote I said earlier is worth repeating there, just the hands of none of us are clean if we bend not our energies to righting these great wrongs. Right. And yeah, the white America at that time just kind of blamed the failures, even in, that's part of WB's work after this that we haven't gotten to yet, is that white American Americans were largely blaming black people for the failures of Reconstruction. That was the historical retelling of why Reconstruction failed was that black people were too slothful and too lazy and they didn't work hard enough to make Reconstruction work. Mm-hmm. When in reality, I mean, we know from further study of history and W.E.B. was, Du Bois was like a big part of exposing the true history of what had happened in Reconstruction is that all kinds of racial violence was unleashed Mm -hmm. and the Freedmen's Bureau was not given nearly enough support from the government to actually give black people a chance, like a fighting chance. Black people were immediately in debt to the white people who were their former slave masters who didn't even consider them free. I, I think we had a couple weeks ago, I read a quote on one of our past episodes and I don't remember the exact words, but it was a letter from a former planter who said, not a single one of us Southerners considered these black people to be free 
we consider them as stolen property, stolen by the damnable bayonets of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Like that was the sentiment during Reconstruction. And actually that quote came from Reconstruction in America, a book by W.B. Du Bois is where I found that quote. And that was the sentiment, was that the, these formerly enslaved and now freed people were seen and hated by their former slave masters and had everything working against them. And then those same white people blamed the black people for the failure of Reconstruction and used that as a justification to continue to see them as not as, you know, uh, to support white supremacy, to continue to see black people as less than. Well, and it's really powerful when you think about that he died the day before the March on Washington and that he had profound respect. There was mutual respect between him and Martin Luther King. He, in his efforts of pan-Africanism, he was basically pushed out, and he became strongly disliked even amongst black people in America. He had a heart for Africa and the colonialism that impacted the continent of Africa as well as the black bodies that were stripped from Africa. And so he had refuge, he sought refuge in Ghana, and he wrote a letter to Martin Luther King the day before he died. So he sat down and wrote a letter, and he had been dealing with illness, I think, and he wrote a letter to Martin Luther King, and then the next day, he died that day, and then the march on Washington happened. Mm -hmm. Powerful. And there was no real acknowledgement. Like, he was just kind of washed out of history, removed, pushed out completely. There was no acknowledgement. There was no pump, no circumstance, no celebrating of this man who founded the NAACP, who did so much. He did amazing work in his lifetime to the backdrop of Jim Crow, segregation, lynching, hatred, oppression, and he founded this amazing organization that went on to advocate for people. Like Thurgood Marshall, he was an attorney who represented, took cases for the NAACP. Many of our civil rights leaders that we herald today, they were a part of the NAACP. And this man founded the NAACP, writes a letter to Martin Luther King, dies, and then the next day, the March on Washington happens. It's like a passing of the baton. It literally is. Mm -hmm. Very powerful. Yeah. And he was, my parents were kids when he died. Like, they were eight and ten. I mean, that's just crazy to me. Mm -hmm. And he was born in 1868, correct? That's really powerful. Yeah. So you mentioned his passing into obscurity at the end of his life. And part of what was happening there is this was in the context of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, and just to kind of like go through this maybe a little bit chronologically, during World War II and the Holocaust, the Jewish people were first, Hitler started to target the Jewish people and spread lies and propaganda about them. He started to publish lists of crimes that Jews would commit. So in any population, every subset is going to be committing crimes. Mm -hmm. But by publishing the crimes that just Jewish people were committing, it made them look more criminal, even though, well, every type of German is committing crimes. But it targeted them and increased racial animosity against the Jews. And then the, the Nazis started to increasingly do more and more like tracking the Jews. And then obviously we know that they created the concentration camps. Mm-hmm. 
And then the Holocaust happened. So then this is kind of in the wake of that, and that's still in the public memory and like is real fresh, but things changed to the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And so then the fear was no longer Nazis, but communists. And black people all throughout history have been accused of being communists. It's like a common refrain. And actually, it's rooted in truth to the degree that communists tried to recruit black people because... Black people knew that America is not built for us and it's not fair. Mm -hmm. And so communists would actually appeal to black people and say like, hey, we can actually, we want to make it more fair for you. We want to make it more even. So, So there was recruitment efforts and also communists used racism in the South as Mm -hmm. propaganda to try to convince other countries around the world to become communist. Mm -hmm. So they would go to Vietnam and say, look how racist America is. They claim to be this beacon of democracy, but look how they treat their own people. Look at these fire hoses being turned on their black people. And the communists would use that as propaganda to convince other people like, hey, look, you're not white. Why would you want to be part of America and democracy? You should become communist. So there was this dynamic where black people then were accused of being communists, even though legitimate atrocities that the communists are using for their recruiting. Right. So then what happened was that in 1961, the McCarran Act, this highly contentious act, was passed over the veto of Truman. And the Supreme Court took this case to decide whether the the McCarran Act would stand or not. The McCarran Act was basically an act that was going to start to do to communists in America some of the things that had been happening to Jews leading up to the Holocaust. It authorized the creation of concentration camps for communists and the government registration of communists or or communist sympathizers. It made it a felony to picket at courthouses, and it barred about 100,000 post-World War II immigrants that were from like communist countries or thought to have communist sympathies from entering the U.S. So the Supreme Court took up the McCarran Act case and they upheld the McCarran Act. And then in response to that, W.E.B. Du Bois said that he was he like declared himself to be a communist. Mm-hmm. So I think he now in history has been written off by a lot of people as like, well, Du Bois became a communist. So he fell into obscurity because obviously communists... We're not popular. And also, I mean, I think it is legitimate that there's like major problems with communism. But I think the, the context was W.E.B. Du Bois saw the Holocaust unfold. And then here, these kind of same things are being leading up to the Holocaust that, that led up to the Holocaust are being perpetuated against communists in America, many of whom are like a lot of black people were being accused of being communists. So then W.E.B. Du Bois kind of uses his clout as one of the most famous and well-respected black people to basically try to throw sympathy, I think, to the communists mm-hmm. by declaring himself to be one. Mm-hmm. But then I think because of that, he was largely written off. So I, I think it's just important to kind of remember the context of that. And then also, I think just honestly, for, for black people at that time period, it's it doesn't take much empathy to see the appeal of communism if you're living in a system where you're being brutalized and lynched to see the appeal of a system where everything is equally redistributed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's major problems with communism because I think in order to redistribute everything, people don't do that voluntarily, and so it takes authoritarian power to do it. And so that, I mean, communism ha- is a responsible for some of the worst atrocities in this last century. But 
you can kind of sympathize with the appeal of it. And I, I think if if you look at W.B. Du Bois more broadly and not just that kind of declaration in protest of the McCarran Act, I don't think he actually had a, a full communist economic or political views. He, all through his life, advocated for democracy, right. for black people having the right to vote. And I, I think he, if anything, was more like socialist. I don't think he actually, a more broad look at him would, would yeah. really... Yeah, and he, I think he was, he was a socialist. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's so funny how people get tied up in all these labels, but racist isn't something that anybody's appalled by. Let's be appalled at socialism, communism, sure, okay. But how about racism? Because mm-hmm. if you're a racist, racism has contributed more to the need or even... The well, I'll say the need for lack of a better word for these other ideologies to combat. If the communists didn't have, if white people weren't racist in America, the communists would have no appeal. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, let's look at that. Yeah, yeah. How many countries that fell into communism would not have, if not for that argument that the communists were legitimately able to levy against America? Exactly because of a racism. So, I mean, with, with anyone like this, we always like to give not just their story, but also some of their writings or ideology, just so you can have right. an idea, not just of what happened to them or what they were a part of, but also to share their thoughts. This is a quote from Du Bois. The Negro is sort of a seventh son, born with a veil, the gift of second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his twoness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one black body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. Yeah, Martin Luther King called him the restless militant black genius. And in his letter, he said, always I've been uplifted by the thought that what I have done well will live along and justify my life. And he says, what I have done ill or never finished can now be handed on to others for endless days to be finished better than perhaps I could have done. He wrote that in his letter to Martin Luther King, I think. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We're also adding a new benefit to all of our patrons, and it is a private Facebook group where we can continue to actively learn about black history together. On our next episode, we will be discussing the N-word. We'll leave you with this quote from W.E.B. Du Bois himself. A system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect.